Today we're talking about uh, morality and moral issues. Um, I'm going to kind of focus on fundamentals of morality, and at the end I'll mention a few uh, common life issues that come up. John 1 is the best, and that's our starting point. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All that, huh? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world knew him not. You get that paradox? He made the world, and the world doesn't know him. There's a, there should be a little sadness there. Uh, he came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Isn't that beautiful? To those who did receive him, he made children of God. That's our starting point. That's morality. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Or if we go on to this, this is just another chapter in the John. I don't know if you've ever like paused and noticed this line before. It's a powerful line. It's powerful, powerful, powerful. John is just getting going, and he says this. This is after the wedding feast in Cana. So Jesus has worked his first miracle, and he's uh, uh, made himself known through that miracle. And then it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. Ugh. I think I read that like 35 times before I like really read it one time, and then it struck me. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man. I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what the point is. It's just so profound, huh? Jesus knows the heart of man. Jesus knows he made the heart of man and he knows it. No one needed to tell him about it. You know, he knows it. Or how about this? God loved the world and gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And that's like when you, when you watch football games, when you watch football games and it says John 316, you know. <laughs> it's a great, of course it's great. But then a couple, then it, it, it brings the, the, the profound beauty of God and grace but at the same time, it's, it's totally real. You know, it's not naive at all about, about what we need to be saved from. It's not naive at all about what we need to be saved from, you know. Uh, for everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. Or this one, this was, I won't read this one, but this is the gospel today. I love this. It's not that what uh, comes from without that defiles a man. It's what comes from his heart. What comes from without, it uh, goes through his stomach and into the latrine, the toilet. You know? I think he could have stopped at stomach, you know. I think we would have got the point. <laughs> no, it goes through the stomach into the toilet. So that's not what defiles. That's not what defines. 
but comes from his heart, right? Jesus knows the human heart. Both, and, and what I'm trying to emphasize here is a couple things. One, he knows the human heart, meaning both what we need for our goodness and fulfillment and happiness, and also what we need to be saved from. Both of those together. He knows them both perfectly. And the, the second thing I'm trying to emphasize here, our starting point as Catholics is the incarnation. It's radical. It's what I was just talking about. It's radical. But we hear it all the time, so we forget that. But if you believe in the incarnation, that, that there's like, I mean, you understand, right? There's an infinite gap between us and God. Infinite, 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 infinite gap. And God bridged that gap to become a man. That's radical, radical, radical. And I don't care what else we talk about ever in the church, ever in history. It's all less radical than the incarnation. It's all less radical than the incarnation. If we can, you know, get over the hill with the incarnation, we can get over the hill on anything. And in fact, you know, we're not the only monotheistic religion. There's Judaism and, and Islam too, right? But the incarnation is too radical for them. It's too radical that God actually became a man. No, no. In, in, in these religions, I, I, there's much to be praised in them, to be, to be sure that there's a great appreciation for the transcendence of God, how God is perfect, the will of God, all those things. Judaism, it doesn't even picture God as an abstraction. God is personal to the Jews. Uh, in some ways to Islam, a little bit less so. And so they're praiseworthy in many ways. But it's still true to say that the incarnation, it's just too radical. They see the darkness in man, Judaism and, and Islam. And so the idea that, that God would like go jumping into the darkness, too far. Too far. But that's exactly what we claim. Nothing is left untouched by the incarnation. Not our soiled humanity, not our evil deeds, not our good deeds everything gets marked by it and so as a catholic when we talk about catholic morality we start with incarnation that's our founding principle for god so loved the world that he entered the world that he gave his son for the world have you ever thought related to this have you ever thought about why lucifer fell Right, so, so God created the angels first. The highest of the angels was Lucifer. He's, Lucifer literally means light bearer. So actually the candle bearers, they're bearing the lights. They're little Lucifers, literally, in line. <laughs> you, you tell them that now and then that gets, a, gets they get confused a little bit, but that's funny. They're, Lucifer, he's the light bearer. He's the one closest to God, right? Why did he fall? We're not told exactly in Scripture, but there's a tradition in the church fathers in the church that the reason Lucifer fell is because God let him glimpse his plan, let him glimpse the rest of creation, and he saw how man was going to be the, the height of creation, that the whole point was for man. Man was, was the centerpiece. It was the most important part. Of, it's what tied everything else together. And Lucifer saw that, and in his pride and in his envy said, holy cow, is that wrong? That is wrong. You can't exalt man like that. Man is this little earthly thing. And so it's too radical for, for Islam, and monotheism is too radical for Lucifer. And so he rebelled. So Catholic starting point, the dignity of the human person. 
God, God created us. So this is a, a little clip from Genesis. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So God, the whole time he was building up to this, uh, to this creation of man, and he has a lot to say about it. This is day six. God's been building up to this point the whole time. This is uh, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam. And there's something kind of cool Michelangelo did uh, to illustrate this. You can see that, you see the cloak that goes around God the, the, and the angels? You, you see that? The red thing? Does, does it look like anything to you? A heart? Anything else? Heart and a brain. So, so if, you, if you look at it this way, it's a heart. If you look at it this way, it's, it's, a, it's a brain. And actually, and that's intentional. Michelangelo and all his little Renaissance buddies, they kind of like carving up dead people, cadavers, in order to study the human body. A little Catholic trivia, you know. And so they did. They knew what the heart looked like. They knew what the brain looked like. He did that on purpose. And so the point, as he's creating Adam, Adam was always in his heart and mind. And not just Adam, who's under God's arm there. That's Eve. And so even as he creates Adam, he always had, had uh, Eve in mind as well. And, and man was always in his mind and his heart, as he does all of creation. Man, Adam and Eve, it was always in his heart and in his mind. And so that's a cool little illustration. But all this is about the dignity of the human person, the fact that we we're created by the Holy Trinity. Creation, it's, it's actually uniquely Jewish and Christian. Now the word is common. But at the time that text I just read to you was, was written, they created a word for it. They created an actual Hebrew word that means to create from nothing. And it was a unique word. Other cultures didn't have that, cultures around the Jews. They didn't have a word for creation. They had a word for making. And in fact, when you read other creationists, sometimes you hear that like the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, maybe that gets thrown around sometimes. It's a, it's a Babylonian st story of how the world was made. Made, not created. Why made? Because their story starts with these gods who fight each other, and one kills another one, and so he like take, rips out his spine, and that, those are the mountains, you know? <laughs> and, and, and you know, he punched them so hard, and he slid through the earth, and you know, there's the sea you know, filled in water. And that's, what, that's what it's like. They, there's no concept of there is nothing, and then God said, let there be light. There's no concept of, of creation from nothing. Um, so when that was written, uh, creation, uniquely Jewish and Christian, now it gets thrown around all the time. But created, that's being taught by that text. We're created by God from nothing. Even in procreation, even now, the soul, it's directly and immediately created by God. Directly and immediately created by God. And so... Yes, humans have a role to, to play in that. Um, but the soul isn't just the product of stuff. 
Stuff doesn't explain what we can do with our soul. Um, God places the soul in the human heart. And even if you think of something like evolution, evolution is an interesting, broad topic, you know? That definitely plays a role, but it's an instrument. It's an instrument that God uses. And uh, there, even evolution doesn't adequately explain what the soul can do. And, and there's this interesting book, Why Only Us, written by these you know, MIT guys studying evolution and stuff. And uh, you know, there's a lot of questions there. If, if it's only evolutionary processes that bring us about, why are we the only ones that can talk? We're the, we're the only ones who can really, really talk and use grammar. There, you can teach monkeys sign language, they can learn 180 different signs, but they, they don't understand grammar. We understand grammar. So grammar is stuff like, let's eat grandma, or let's eat grandma. <laughs> you know the difference. You hear the difference right away. Because you're human, you have a soul that God placed in you. But uh, monkeys don't get it. <laughs> There's no other really good explanation. And this was the whole point, as I said. It was always in the heart and mind of God that humans would be the centerpiece of of uh, creation. First among God's creatures. You can see in that text how God says, you fill the earth and subdue it, take care of it, right? Um, that comes with the responsibility to care for God's creation, of course. It's not just like, a, it is a dignity thing. It's a privilege thing, but there's a responsibility that comes uh, with it. And... You know, the hardest part of that for us is the first master ourselves, you know. I know, you know, especially when you're young, you want to jump on a bed and go change the world and take this seriously. But step one is to make your bed, you know. That's, that's the idea there. We have to master creation. That's our responsibility. But we got to master ourselves first. St. Francis is not a hippie, okay. <laughs> so I, here's St. Francis. He's uh, preaching to the birds. He's kind of, when you talk about responsibility for creation and loving creation to care of it, often St. Francis pops up in your head right away. And you can see this. This is a, a fresco in, in Assisi. And it's St. Francis preaching to the birds, preaching the good news and the gospel. And there's a story that goes with it. He was preaching. The people got sick of listening to him. They're tired. And he's like, fine, I'm not tired of preaching, so I'm going to, I'm going to preach to creation to the birds. And, but here's the idea there. It's not about being a hippie. It's not being a, a tree hugger or anything like that. Original sin divides. It divides man from God, man from neighbor, man from himself. And it divides uh, us man from the rest of creation. And so grace repairs each one. So if you go, you start grace, replace uh, uh, repairs the relationship between man and God. That's the love of God, right? Repairs the relationship that man has with his neighbor. And then it repairs the relationship man has within himself, that he can master himself. And then in the lives of the saints, which you start to see is that grace has so taken over, holiness has so taken over, that the wound between them and creation is being healed too. That's how far grace goes in them. And so a natural fear that animals have of humans uh, kind of goes away. There's a trust there. Uh, there's an order there that God intended but was taken away from original sin. And so St. Francis, when he, sees, uh, when he sees creation, he sees the hand of God. I don't know if you know, do you know this Mumford and Sons? They have this song called The Cave. You know this song? The Cave is actually written uh, with St. Francis in mind based on something G.K. Chesterton wrote. 
uh, in the cave, there's this, the chorus goes like this. So come out of the cave, walking on your hands and see the world hanging upside down. Um, you will know your independence when you see the maker smile, something like that. Did I get it right? More or less. That's it. So come out of the cave, walking your hands. What's the idea there? Francis went through this purification in his life where he lived in a cave and he, uh, uh received a great gifts from God and, and was dedicated in prayer and, and stuff like that. And he was purified deeply by God. And G.K. Chesterton says when he came out of the cave, uh, he saw creation in an entirely new way as coming from the hand of God. And in fact, it would be like, for us, we, the world is upright and it's stable and it's independent and it's, and it's on its own a little bit. But once you see the connection between creation and God, creation and the Father, it's actually more accurate to see it upside down, hanging from the heavens, totally dependent on the Father. That's a more accurate way to see the world because it is dependent on the Father, it is dependent on God. It's, it's being held into being, into, into existence by God all the time, being provided for by God all the time. And that Francis, when, when he's praising creation, that's what he's seeing. He's praising God through creation. And so it's not this exaltation of creation all by itself, but it's an exaltation of God through the beauty of his works. And so Francis is not a hippie. <laughs> Dignity of the human person, we're made in the image and likeness of God, like that, uh, that text I gave you uh, says. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed the Good Samaritan at the end. So the, the people walk by, leave him for dead. Good Samaritan uh, picks him up, heals, uh, treats his wounds and stuff, brings him to the inn. And then he gives the innkeeper what? He gives him money. Yeah. What, do, what does money have? What, what does money have on it? Even our money. Symbol, like a person, it has an image. It has an image. And so sin in creation, God created us this way to have an image and likeness on it. But it was damaged by sin. That, in, that, uh, in that parable, it's Jesus who's the good Samaritan. That's the whole point. Yes, Jesus says, go and love your neighbor at the end of it. But the whole point of the story isn't you go do good. It's to illustrate how Jesus has saved us. He is the good Samaritan who saves us who are dead in the ditch. And, and giving the coin, church fathers always interpreted this as he's restoring the image and likeness that we had at creation. And that was damaged through sin. Jesus gives it back. It's not taken away totally by original sin. It was, it was obscured. So it's like a coin that has a bunch of dirt on it. You know, the old one that you dig out under your, your car seat or something. The old penny with gum on it and stuff, you know. <laughs> Jesus cleans that up. And he gives us our image and, and likeness uh, back. Luther, Martin Luther, of course, he, he disagreed. Used. He said that, that our human nature, we're piles of... That's what Luther said. He thought... And all the reformers thought our human nature, our image and likeness, sin took that away completely. There's nothing good in us anymore. Nothing at all. And so that's part of the reason why Protestants have a hard time with saying uh, works are involved in our salvation at all. Because they don't believe anything good can come from our nature. We're totally irredeemable. And so Luther describes our redemption like this, that we're piles of beep. And God just kind of covers up the outside with snow. And so we look pure, but deep down, we, we're still garbage, you know. 
Um, that's not how Catholics view, view redemption at all. It was damaged, Jesus restores it, and it's clean in us after grace again. Um, our image and likeness means that I have an ability for self-knowledge, to know me and what's in me and what God created in me, self-possession, to like own myself, own my actions, take responsibility for myself, to direct my actions, and then also then, ultimately, in the best, to give myself away because of the image and likeness of God. That's natural. That's just the way God created us. And then through Jesus, he elevates that. Grace makes it possible to know the Trinity then. To know the Trinity. Grace makes it possible to possess divine life. And grace makes it possible to make oneself a gift to God. That's our image and likeness. And then actually... Our image and likeness, um, it, it, it's a symbol for God as well. God knows himself, and he knows himself so perfectly that it's another person. So the Father knows himself so perfectly that from that knowledge comes the perfect embodiment of his knowledge, and that's the word. First person of the Trinity, knowing himself so perfectly that the word pro- proceeds from that, and that's the Son. And then Father and Son embrace each other so perfectly, give themselves to each other so perfectly, from that proceeds another person, the Holy Spirit, who is love. Um, and so that, that, those abilities in me from creation actually reflect who God is. And then you go on there too. We live in society. The, the, what the text actually says when it's talking about image and likeness is that image and likeness, male and female. Male and female, image and likeness. And so part of our image and likeness is also the fact that God created us male and female as a society, as a couple. And so that complementarity and living in society is a reflection of God, too. And so we get a little hint here in the first couple verses of Genesis that God, too, is a society. He's a trinity of persons, one God and a trinity of persons. He's not divinely alone forever. You know, he's a society. And so the fact that he made us male and female is actually really, 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 really important for understanding who God is. And he gave us that hint right away in creation. Second Peter speaks about that we become partakers of the divine nature. Become partakers of divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So he talks about all these virtues, all these things we should do that are good. But where does he start? The starting point is our dignity and that we were made to actually participate in the divine nature of God. So we're created in our human dignity with kapax dei is the Latin, a capacity for God. There's, there's nothing else like that in creation. We have capacity to receive God. Um, and through receiving God, then we become like God, deification to become like God. If I asked you, what's our moral goal as Christians and as Catholics? What, just think to yourself, what's our entire goal? Some of you might have thought, to be a good person, I understand why people say it, and there's truth to it. We want to be morally good. We want to be people of character. But it's my goal in the priesthood to make people stop saying that. Okay? <laughs> so, so if you thought that, it's not nothing against you. But I want to provide a little correction on that. It's not just about being a good person. 
It's, it's, it's about deification, God-like, partaker in the divine nature, receiving the gift of God, thanksgiving. That's the starting point. Okay, second place now. Let, let that gift grow through being moral and, and a person of good character. But our ultimate goal is to become God-like. And, and you know, because, because we're talking about God, that might kind of seem kind of big and abstract, but this is just how friendship is. If you have any good friends, you know that you start using the same jokes, you know? You start talking alike. You use the same phrases, right? You have the same joys and, and, and similar hobbies. That, I mean, that's what happens to friends, right? They, they, they become like each other just by the time they spend together and the love they share and, and, and all of that, right? And so if, if we as Catholics are gonna call Jesus friend, that's what's gotta happen. We gotta become God-like. We gotta become Christ-like. Shares in the divine nature. It, it it's lofty, it's big, but that's the goal, man. And it, it's done by the grace of God. Good person is too low. It's too low. It's too limited. Uh, it, it's not the goal. It's it's become godlike. And in fact, what is damnation in your mind? Just think to yourself. What's damnation? What always gets me in the gospel when Jesus talks about the eternal worms that eat you? That scares me a little bit. So that's, <laughs> that's the first thing I think of. The eternal worms, man, I'm not, I'm not down with that. Fire, fine. I can deal with that. The, the eternal worms eating my, yeah, no good. But, but damnation, damnation in a really simple sense is simply trying to fill that capacity for God with anything that's not God, even if it's good. And so separation from God is a, is a great definition, and that's totally it. But in this context, we can think of, of damnation. God created me with this capacity for God. And if I put anything but God there, I, it, it's not enough. It's not enough. My, my, it's like throwing, taking the Grand Canyon and throwing a five-gallon bucket of water in there. Like there, there's just emptiness. And that emptiness is damnation. Only you know, there's a there's a godlike hole in your soul, and anything smaller ain't gonna do it. And so so this is how Saint Augustine puts it: Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Nothing short of that is gonna do it. And if we pick anything, even if it's good, family is great. You know, family is a great thing. If I put family above God, that's not enough. It's not enough. It won't satisfy me eternally. And the, and, and the beauty is, though, once we receive God, we, we receive everything else that's good, too. To have God is to have everything. So you don't lose your family when you put God first and receive God. And then the body is important, too. Huh? Body and soul make one person. If you're missing one, something important about you is missing. You're not a little guy sitting in the machine. This is from, if you, who's seen Men in Black? Men in Black, anyone? Yeah. Men in Black, alien movie. It's very funny. Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith, one of my favorites. It's great. But uh, there's a guy who gets killed at one point, and then, the, and then his face kind of opens, and there's this little alien <laughs> sitting in there. That is not a Catholic thing. <laughs> that is not a Catholic thing. We are not, we're, you know, that's not how body and soul go together. You know, you're not, your soul isn't in this little place with... with you know, controls or whatever. Your body's important to you. It's a part of you. Of course, the soul is the most important. Um, 
but uh, the body we hold in great respect as well. And so il easy illustration of this, if I walked up and I said, and I just like hit you, and you said, ouch, you hit my body, the machine I'm sitting in. No, you wouldn't say that. You said you hit me, because your body's you. It's, it's still you, even if you have a soul as well. And so in, in Catholic morality, the body is extremely important. We gotta discipline it and teach it a lesson. Uh, St. Francis called his buddy, brother donkey, because it was stubborn, he wouldn't listen to him. It was brother donkey, you know. But uh, uh, at the same time, it's you, and we hold it in great dignity. Okay, a few things just on morality before getting into details. Our perspective on morality is it's simply this. Let's say I got this Ferrari, beautiful red Ferrari. And, and, and St. Mary's just loved me so much they gave me a big, big raise. They gave me a big raise, and, and I got all this money flowing out of me, so I go buy a Ferrari. And I, I polish that bugger up. Oh, man, is that beautiful, you know? And I, you know, I... I take it through car wash, and I go on spins down River Road, and I, I drive all around. I avoid Minot, because if you ever left Minot, bugs everywhere. <laughs> so I never drive the Minot. Yeah. You know, awful, awful, awful. But then, but then I go, and I pull up, and I'm low on gas after my big drives, and wind rushing through my hair. And I, I, I fill up the gas tank with milk. Is my car going to work very good? No. Right, and, and it's a silly example, but you get the point. A Catholic perspective on morality is we have this great dignity and, and we have this great design to us and there's something objective to it. Things are gonna help, things are gonna hurt. And we want my Ferrari to be running well and to be looking beautiful. And so there are certain things because of who I am and how God created me that are gonna help me function well and live well and enjoy life and have peace. And so we just have to respect that when we make our choices. Morality, you could just say, is the art of living well. Too often I say the word morality and it's finger shaking and feeling bad. That's not the point. That's not even Catholic tradition. It's the art of living well. It's a pathway to happiness. That's the whole point. That's the whole point is happiness. Ending in heaven, we have an internal perspective. Um, but we get, when we, uh, there's this great saying, the way to heaven is heaven. And so when we have eyes on heaven, we're striving for heaven, we're prioritizing heaven and the eternal happiness there, we get tastes of it. We get tastes of heaven here, of happiness here. And that just increases our drive towards heaven. It's a pathway to living excellently with peace and joy and fun. And fun. Heaven is fun. I can't wait for heaven, you know. And, and, and virtue is fun. Vice and, and doing things wrong, that's miserable. That's miserable. That's why I hate and I tell the students all the time. I think I mentioned it Sunday. The idea of, of heaven is like, you know, nuns, you know, grimacing and walking around. And then, and hell is this great party, all this stuff I, I, you know, was told not to do, but I did anyway. And so now I get to do it in hell. Yee-hoo. That's, that's totally backwards and wrong. And we should destroy that. <laughs> that image. Um, how about a little reminder too? How do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? Just think to yourself, how do I get to heaven? What's the way to heaven? We say this in the Mass every single week, right? It's truly right and just, so duty and our salvation always and everywhere to be a good person. Wrong. <laughs> no, got you. My one 
if people stop saying to be a good person when I die, I will have accomplished my mission as a priest. No. No, 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 no. Heaven is a gift freely given and freely accepted. That's our starting point. And so the real words there, always and everywhere, to give you thanks. It's our duty and our salvation. Our salvation, heaven. It's our heaven to be thanking you for the gift that you've given. Freely given, freely accepted. There's nothing else. There's no other place to start. Nothing else to be said in the first place. Freely given, freely accepted. You have to start there. Now step two. Now step two. We want the gift to grow. Morality. Faith, hope, and love. Prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice. Right? So morality is in this. It's in the second place. First thing, free gift, freely given, freely accepted. Incarnation. God's initiative towards us. Uh, nothing gets left untouched by the incarnation. He knows the darkness that's there. He goes into it anyway. He knows what he needs to liberate us, liberate us from. It's our salvation to say yes to that and give thanks for that. And so give thanks for, for your job and, and, and Ferrari and all that stuff. But first give thanks for salvation. That's the first thing. So now we'll get into more morality proper. Uh, a moral act is always rational. That's the first thing it needs to be. And so animals can't do moral acts. So they're not rational, right? They're driven by instinct. Even the more impressive things that animals do, it's centuries and millennia of instinct, not through reason. Reason is it's what sets us apart. Be careful. Often, and this was me, I, I feel strongly about this because this was me for years and years and years. You say reason, I think we are rational. We often think, like brain on a stick, you know? That's the most rational, it's the, it's the professor. You know, it's the guy who's read the encyclopedia. He's the rational one. That's, that's too limited, or we just think logic. If I had said to you what, you know, the smartest people you wanted to know and be the most rational, what would you read? You might think of encyclopedias, you know? That's not it, that's not it, that's too narrow. Or analytic, the analytical type. It's always like in his head thinking about stuff and dividing it and making this. No, that's not it. Reason includes lots of stuff. There's an affective side to reason or something like it, right? So your affect, joy, peace, right? There's an affective side to it. And it's this, experiencing wonder. Animals do not experience wonder. They don't know a thing about beauty or awe to be struck by something. Right? That's all reason. And, it, and it's ability you have through reason. So there's an effective side. It's not cold, you know, brains on sticks, you know. Um, it, it's, it's about wonder and awe and beauty. It includes intuition. You know, something just hits you. You, you have an insight into something, and it feels good. And, you're, and you, you get that wonder and awe. That's reason. That's reason. It's not just logic. Not just open it out, you know. Uh, it actually, in spontaneity, uh, I like uh, a good example. You know, I've heard from many married couples, or, and even couples that I've uh, prepped for marriage, that they were told by people, you know, you'll know who, who it, the one you're supposed to marry, you'll know, you'll just know. And some people experience it that way. It just kind of strikes you have this intuition, you know. And, and that's coming from reason, too, you know. And I know a priest who said, tells people, and it's totally true, and he says to ladies especially, if you find a guy who's like, 
you know, I, I thought about it and I've reasoned it out and, you know, I've X, Y, and Z and we have to get married. It's just the logical thing, you know, run for the hills. <laughs> that's not, you know, and that's not even really reason rightly, you know, that intuition, that spontaneity of love, that's reason. That's because of your reason, you know, that's included in all of this. Um, and it includes ability for creativity. So musicians, reason, it's an exercise of reason, you know. Artists, the great artists, exercise of reason, you know. Here's an, an example. These are cave paintings in France, ancient, ancient, old ones. No one ever discovered cave paintings and thought, what did this? They might have thought who, right? They might have thought who, what kind of people, or, or where do they come from, or what are they drawing? But not what? No one, no one got confused and thought, wait, was it, were, were these horses? Were these some kind of ancient horses that, that did this? Or monkeys? No, you see, you see cave paintings and you realize something human, something that can think did this. And so creativity and art goes part and parcel with being human, goes part and parcel with, uh, with our morality, and, uh, and et cetera. The second thing is that moral acts are free chosen, not driven by instinct. Freedom, though we have to understand well, it's a skill. I know in America we say, you know, I was born free and it's a free country and all that stuff. We say that, you know. We also say freedom ain't free, and that's a lot closer to the truth. It's a skill. It's something that you get better at with practice. Um, You're not born with it. You're born with a capacity for freedom, but we struggle at freedom. You're born with the ability to choose, but not the ability to choose well. And choosing well, that's where you experience freedom. And so easy, if you think of, you know, who's more free on the basketball court? Is it me or is it Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan's more free. He can do more moves. He can make them more frequently. He can probably go longer than 30 seconds without being bent over, you know, gasping for air, you know. But that, but that wasn't just like innate in him, that came through practice, right? Um, or piano, anyone who's learned piano or music, like the first time you, you, you pick it up and try to do it, um, it's like burdensome. You, you start playing a little bit and the teacher hits you and you're like, hands up, you know? And then, and then you kind of do it for a while and they're like, quit slouching, you know? <laughs> no, that's not, don't hold your hands away. So you gotta learn all these rules, but then when you learn the rules and practice it, you're free playing the piano. There's ease and there's joy and all that. And so choosing well is how uh, you develop freedom. I like this example. Can people who are in heaven, can they choose to leave heaven? No, they can't. Does that make them not free? No, it makes them more free. They don't want to. They don't want to. And they're fulfilled in heaven. And so they, they literally cannot. There is no world in which they leave heaven. They can't do it. But that's because they're free. It doesn't limit their freedom, right? And I think you would experience this in, in marriage as well. Like when you, there's definitely lots of trials in marriage and there's growth periods and stuff like that. But when you get to that point where you know, I'm in this forever, you know, that's, there's some freedom that comes in that. You know, you're locked in, but it's for the sake of, sake, of, sake of freedom. And so how about this? A moral act is scratching your beard. Is that moral, morality? Is that what we're talking about? 
right? So it's not like everything you do is morality coming from your mind and coming from your deliberate choice. No, we have instincts too. And so the, oh, it itches, I'm going to go scratch it. That's a human act because you're a human person doing it, but it's not a moral act um, per se. It's not precisely what we talk about when we talk about morality. And so only moral acts could be sins, right? Only thing coming from my choice um, and coming from my, my, uh, my reason. Natural law, the foundation is simply this. Do good and avoid evil. That's it. Do good, avoid evil. It's not even really a law. It's just the foundation for everything else. The foundation for everything else we ever do in morality is do good and avoid evil. It cannot be denied. It can't be denied. Uh, it's, if you do deny it, it's just totally incoherent because everyone lives this way naturally. You can't not live this way. You know, people get at weird ideas of well, what's good and what they go after and what's evil and what they avoid. They get weird ideas about that, but they have some conception of the good and what completes me, and they have some conception of what harms me, and they act based on that. And so the, the basic thing about human beings is that we do good and we avoid evil, according to our understanding of it. Um, it's sort of like this. A thing cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Um, that's, that's the first principle for thinking. And it's just simply this, no contradictions. Right? If I'm here in this room, I'm not over there in that room. I can't be both right? at the same time and in the same respect. Maybe this morning I was over there different times, right? Um, but, it, but, it, but it can't be both. Um, and again, if you deny this, it's, it's just totally co incoherent. We can't make sense anymore. We can't even talk anymore. There's this uh, uh, Muslim philosopher. Th this is old as philosophy, this, this little rule. And, uh, and there are people who deny it, and it's incoherent to try, but they try. And so the Muslim philosopher said, anyone who denies, it's called the principle of non-contradiction. And he says, uh, whoever denies the principle of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until they agree that to be beaten is not the same thing as to not be beaten, and to be burned is not the same thing as to not be burned. <laughs> and... Uh, so there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> no contradictions. You can't make sense about this. And you can't, you can't, if you understand this broadly enough, how it's meant, you, you can't live like that. You have some conception of what you want, and you have some conception of what harms what you want. And, and everyone acts like that. That's the foundation for all of it. You should know the natural law, it's an internal law. So we're using law, but it's not law like Congress decreed you know, X, Y, and Z and it's written down, and it's promulgated, and it's enforced. No, it's just, it, it's internal. It's in the mind and in, in the heart. Um, so all things being equal, every human being spontaneously experiences these things and thinks this way. There's no choice not to. All else being equal. And it, it's, it's like a light, you could say. You know, I see everything around here through the lens through the capacity of light. It permits me to see things, right? Um, this, this law, it permits me to make sense of my choices and to make choices. Without light, there's no seeing. 
without this law, there's no choosing. There's no good or evil, nothing like that. And so because of that, because it's internal, because it's like a light, because it's a foundation, it's, it's universal and it's unchanging. There's no, no, no exceptions, no exceptions. Um, and so once you do that foundation that everything else depends on, there are actually three first precepts of the natural law. And the first one, individual life is to be preserved and avoid obstacles to life. That's the first one. We preserve my existence, or I preserve my existence. I do so spontaneously. And, I, and, and to not do that, something like suicide, or to put my life in the danger, even in a sacrificial way, I have to overcome something really, really, really deep in me that wants to live. The second law is to continue the species to, to reproduce, um, to raise children and to educate those children. That's the second law. Everything has this inclination naturally just to do that. The third law is to know the truth about God and to live in society. So no man is an island. We naturally come together and, and we naturally um, and we naturally associate and help each other towards our goal. And we also naturally want to know the truth. And not just the truth, but truth itself, the ultimate truth. And that's what we call God. And so that's innate in us as well. And so you, you'll notice, like, truth, of course, you know, it's, it's about your intellect, but it's also about your will. It's about honesty. It's about pursuing it, about, about trying to know things. And so it's actually a moral duty, too, to, to seek the truth to the best of my ability, according to my state in life, of course, in my capacity. But truth is part of who I am. It's part of my need as a human person. You know, you know some people would, would uh, you know, object to them and say, but, you know, cultures, they do it. They apply it. It looks differently, Father. Once you study anthropology, you know, not all people know the same truth about God you know not everyone has the same rituals around marriage that's number two you know propagate the species you know marriage looks different in different cultures yeah I get that totally but they do seek the truth about ultimate things and they have some explanation of it all cultures they have some way some way whatever that way is of protecting the species and a family life it looks different for different cultures but but family and, and, and reproducing and rituals around that exist in every single culture. And some morality about uh, taking care of yourself, preserving your life exists in every culture as well. So it exists in every single person ever born. This is what St. Paul says. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his internal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So this is St. Paul speaking in Romans, making this claim. God can be known naturally. You know, he can be known just through the things in creation, you know. Whatever a culture of people decide, however they enculturate that, we measure it against the universal moral law. That's the natural law. Those things I just talked about. Um, you know, St. Paul seems to be saying here, atheism isn't a thing. That's kind of what he seems to be say saying. 
Uh, so I, I, I just thought I'd kind of pose you can think to yourself, do you think it's obvious that God exists? I think what St. Paul is saying is all things being equal, it's obvious, right? So this is the analogy I thought of today while I was eating my, my sandwich for lunch. Let's say you studied math really well and you knew math. But then some years went by um, and then you hadn't studied it for a while. And let's say you had a math test coming up and then on top of that you haven't studied it for a while and the night before the math test you stay up late and you... Uh, you know, you, you just drink pop and eat Cheetos, you know, and, uh, and you play video games. And then you get up the next morning and try to take your math test. You know math. You studied it before. You're not going to perform very well. You're not going to articulate it very well because you haven't done it in a while. And because uh, you didn't prepare well through sleep and through uh, taking care of yourself because your mind is going to be all fuzzy. And you're not going to do very well in the math test. Knowledge of God is kind of like that. It's in us. It's in every single little person. Every single person who's ever been created, knowledge of God is in there. And, and there's some really beautiful examples where you can see that in all kinds of different cultures. It's in there. But it does get obscured. And it gets obscured from all kinds of ways. Some of it, you know, our bad moral choices obscures our knowledge of God. Like a murderer knows God less than a not murderer. You know, that obscures knowledge of God, that sort of thing. And so from a certain standpoint, yeah, God can be known, and he should be known. And so it, it, because it's in us, and, it, and God has marked creation. And so if you are honest and you study creation, you can come to a knowledge of God. And so remember, two natural laws and internal laws. So to break the natural law is, is to be acting contrary to own interests and inclinations. It's not the finger-shaking thing. It's just what... what there's something in you that propels you towards preserving your life and, and developing your life and, and wanting a good life. There's something in you that, that, that propels you to procreate. There, there's something in, the, in you that propels you uh, to know the truth and to study and to you know, have friends. And, and when we break the natural law, it's not that I've bro- broken something written down. It's that I'm acting contrary to my own interests and inclinations. And you can notice, too, when I... When I, when I lay those out, you can see really quickly, a lot of the things that we argue about today it, with morality, the hard issues, so to speak, um, you know, they, a lot of them go to the very foundations of our inclinations, something like abortion, you know, something like gay marriage or euthanasia or atheism. You know, they, it, it goes to the most fundamental things about us, our most fundamental inclinations. And, and so it, it really does... Yeah, it shows the severity of some of those things. But Father, I'm imagining my students talking to me right now. But Father, people disagree about moral things. Different cultures believe different things. I would say to that, what things are we talking about? Are we talking about murder or are we talking about dinner manners? Yes, cultures differ with rituals around manners or rituals around marriage or rituals around all sorts of things, yeah. But there's broad consensus on stuff like murder or stealing or lying. There's a broad, 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 or suicide. Broad, 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 broad consensus. And so it's not as different as you would think. Or greeting and bowing versus shaking hands and eye contact. It's evil in some cultures and it's, and it's disrespectful to not make eye contact in some cultures, you know. So there's certainly legitimate differences, but there's broad consensus. 
and the fact that there's disagreement, it's actually a sign of our blindness, you know. It's not something, it's not a sign of like, you know, something good. It's a, it's, it's a sign of the fact that we struggle to know what's, what's true and what's good. And so if you think of the Tower of Babel, right, the Tower of Babel is, um, you know, the, the peoples conspire against God. And they, the peoples want to build this tower, and it's a sign of their pride. They want to rival God. And what happens as a result of that? God confuses their speech to keep them from their own pride, to save them from their own pride, really. And so the fact that there's that kind of diversity is a sign of the weakness of human nature, that we're divided, and that's not how God created us. And there's this other, I love this story. In India, in India, there is this, uh, or was, this practice that widows would throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyres as the husband was being burned on the funeral pyre and it was kind of expected and there was this practice where the widow would throw herself on it and be burned alive next to her husband Ugh. you know and so I put a few where did it come from you know some would say it was the voluntary sacrifice of the widow she was inconsolable because she didn't have her husband. And so she just threw herself and, you know, the, the burden of life wasn't worth bearing anymore. So she would throw herself on. Those might have been the origins, some say. Yeah, it was part of her wifely virtue to do so. And, and so all of that is kind of shocking and, and sick. And so when the British colonized India, the British, when they colonized India, just to be clear, they were horrible. And I know people, they have this theory that Britain is the source of all evil, and it's kind of interesting when you get into it and stuff. But, but with this thing, when the British colonized India and saw this, they're horrified by it, completely horrified by it. And so they didn't, and, and didn't know what to do with it, and what they decided to do with it is to um, ban it. And there's this guy, Lord William uh, Bentick, who banned it. And the people, especially the leaders, the Brahmins, they objected to it and, and told the guy, this is our culture. You have to respect our culture. It's our culture that widows give themselves next to their husbands and are burned alive on the funeral pyre. And there's a name for it. It's, it's a suti or something like that. You got to respect our culture. And the British officer said, uh, you know what? I agree with you. I'll respect your culture. But I'm going to ask you, you have to respect my culture too. And in my culture, when, when uh, women are forced to burn themselves alive, we hang the people who force them to burn the people alive. And so you do your culture, I'll do my culture. I'm going to hang everyone who forces a woman to, to throw herself alive and be burned alive on the funeral pyre. And you can keep throwing women on, on open fires. Deal? You know? <laughs> that, was, that was the thing. And so it, it illustrates um, when you have relativism, this idea that like you have nothing you have nothing to say about my morality and what I think is right and this is just our practice this is just what we believe you have to respect that um, that kind of relativism what it always ends up being is a power struggle there's nothing else for it the guy who's in charge he gets to decide he gets to enforce everything on his own idea on morality on everyone else you know um, and it also shows too it cuts both ways right yeah it, fine you're gonna you're gonna ask for your conception be respected I ask for mine to be respected too they're going to conflict and if I'm more powerful I get to enforce it it turns into might makes right every time a note on conscience there's a difference between feeling conscience 
and knowledge conscience. I think uh, if you've heard about your Catholic guilt, you know, you suffer your Catholic guilt. One reason for it is we maybe identify the feeling of being guilty as my conscience. But that's not necessarily what your conscience is. Your conscience is what you know to be right, and you're just striving for that, right? And so the guilt is one experience of conscience, but it's not the whole thing. And so your Catholic guilt, you're free, get rid of it. You know, it, it does inhibit you towards a moral life. Um, and it's not necessarily what your conscience is about. Consciences have to be formed, right? We're not born innately knowing perfectly what the good is. We have a duty to, to form it through reading scriptures, through listening to church teaching, uh, through tradition of, of Christians and the first Christians, all those sorts of things. Um, and, and in fact, your conscience tells you, you need to form your conscience. You innately know that I don't have all the answers. Right? And so you're, you, you know that innately. And so your conscience tells you, I have to form this. I have to look into things. I have to ask people. I have to talk to people who are wise uh, to get an idea. And consciences can be wrong. It's really, really important. I, in our culture, we hear that a lot. Well, my conscience told me to do it. So you have nothing to say now. I love conscience, but conscience can be wrong. You, know? um, you do have to go with what you know. That is true. But conscience never contradicts the teaching of the church on faith and morals, for example. If your conscience does contradict it, uh, you got to go with teaching on faith and morals. There's such a thing as intellectual pride and rationalizations and all those things, you know. And so we can be tricked. We can be an error, just like math. We can be an error about math. We can be error on faith and morals. Conscience is hugely important. So there's this quote, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. He was said... Uh, if he were to ask the toast of the Pope, what would he say? He would say, to the Pope, if you please, still to conscience first and the Pope after. So I owe my first obligation to the conscience and then the Pope after that. And there's something true about that, to be, to be sure. John Henry Cardinal Newman has a very high view of conscience. He says it's the voice of God in your soul. And so when he says that, that's what he's thinking of. It, it, when, when God speaks in your soul, you owe that first. And that's totally true, right? But, 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 but this is not what he's saying. He's saying, go with what you know. He's not saying, go with what you know, feel, even if millions of Christian people throughout the centuries and the whole church tradition and living voice of the church and Jesus and the scriptures all say otherwise. That's, that's not what he's saying, you know. And so whenever we hear that idea, conscious that, you know, I know what the church says about contraception, but, uh, you know, my consciousness tells me otherwise. <laughs> you know, wrong, you know. And, and, and you don't have the backing of how the first church fathers would have thought of it and uh, how Jesus would have thought of it, how John Henry Cardinal Newman would have thought of it. Um, and so we, we have a certain obligation to check that out first and to realize, be humble enough to realize, I have intellectual pride. I have rationalization. And to realize, too, I'll just throw this last little tidbit, contraception especially, one of the hard things uh, to accept, and I get that. Um, it can be difficult uh, decisions and stuff and difficult challenges and all that. So I do get it and I have empathy for it. But, I mean, we should know contraception isn't new. The ancient world had contraception. It's not new. In the 1960s, when the church investigated it and, and made its decision, the question was not whether contraception is okay. Because contraception is not new, as I said. The question was, is the pill a form of contraception? It was a new technology. It was a new way of doing it. And so the question was, is this a form of contraception or is it something that's legitimate? 
The question was not, is contraception okay? Contraception has always been around. It's always been condemned by the church. Throughout all tradition, the church fathers, the first Christians, they all knew about it, and they all taught that it shouldn't be done. And so that's not a new thing. And so our consciences, they have to be formed, but they have to be, they're good. It's the voice of God in you. We've got to work to form them through scripture and tradition.